This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hi, guys. Paula here. Before we get started, we wanted to give a shout out to all our partners who are supporting us on Patreon. I'm sure you're going to want to join us in thanking these fellow listeners for helping us keep the lights on. So thank you, Mary Beth, Teresa, Candace, Jonathan, Jenny, Melissa, Kayla, Corin, Megan, Mark, Sarah, Paula, Lynn, Tiffany, Heidi, Bradley, Laura, Harry, Wendy, Justin, Mickey, MP Banks, Vicki, Jana, Linda, Molly, Lisa, and Barbara. Now, on with the show. I don't want you thinking that we're sinking at all. Always waves. I promise they'll find rest on the shore. Dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Steve, we've done a handful of episodes about people whose deaths were ruled suicide, although others were convinced it was murder. So I'm going to have fun picking your brain here. Do you remember any of those cases? Well, how about the guy who designed that train bridge, remember, that fell and they thought he killed himself in despair? Yeah, good one. Charles Collins. Actually, he was... He was the guy who the Cleveland neighborhood of Collinwood is named for. He designed a bridge in Ashtabula, and soon after that bridge failed one snowy evening, killing more than 80 people, Collins was found dead in his bed with a bullet hole in his head. And it was ruled suicide, but privately paid forensic experts said no way. The crime scene and his bullet wound indicated he'd been shot by someone else. Uh, we don't know who, maybe the angry member of a victim's family or someone trying to hide a secret about the bridge. And I've got another one. What about that woman? We did that series with the Beacon Journal, the one called Exhumed, the one who died in the fire. Oh, yes. Linda Comar. They could tell the fire at her home was intentionally set, but for years, authorities thought it was either an accident or suicide. But a few years ago, they reopened her case, reclassified it as a homicide, 
and have since been searching for Linda's killer. Oh, and do you remember the girl in blue from Willoughby? We've replayed that episode a couple of times. Yes, yes, the Christmas story. Yes, very sad. Young woman on her way home to Pennsylvania through Ohio. She was in Willoughby when she dropped her suitcase and took off running after a train. And she careened off the side of the train and died from blunt force trauma. And authorities decided that she must have been trying to kill herself. But the fact that she ran into the side of the train and not in front of it made some witnesses think it looked like she was actually just trying to jump on board. Right, right. And of course, how could we forget the one we did very recently? David Box down in Cincinnati. Remember the authorities thought he squeezed himself into a vat of molten lava? (laughs) Yeah, he worked for a U.S. government plant that processed uranium for nuclear weapons. Many who knew him said no way did he kill himself in such a painful way that it was more likely he intended to be a whistleblower about the toxins being released in the surrounding community and that he was killed to keep him quiet. We should let all of our listeners know that they can find all of these episodes on our website. If they haven't heard them yet, it's on ohiomysteries.com. Right. Click on the sorted tab at the top of the homepage and then scroll down to the genre that says mysterious deaths. So I'm going to take a guess that we are adding another mysterious death to our category. You know, you're not just good looking. You're pretty smart. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to add Joseph Kupchik to the list, a young Strongsville man who had his whole life ahead of him. And folks are torn between authorities who think he really killed himself and his family who thinks the way he was living his life put him in the crosshairs of a killer. Joseph Kupchik was an identical twin. He and his brother Jonathan were born to George and Karen Kupchik, and they had two other siblings as well, Michael and Katie. The Kupchiks lived in a modest two-story home in Strongsville, a Cleveland suburb. True crime author James Renner wrote about Joseph Kupchik in his book, The Serial Killer's Apprentice. I should note The book is a compilation of cases. The title doesn't reflect Joe's case. But Renner saved a chapter for Joe, and he was able to share some personal things about Joe's life. Joe was 19 years old in 2006 when our story takes place. Joe and his twin John were hard to tell apart. They shared the same smile, their mom's dark eyes, and their father's brown hair. The brothers graduated from Strongsville High School in 2004, where many knew Joe by the nickname Cuppy. He was tall, but not athletic. He'd play pickup games now and then and loved watching football on the weekends. He was a fan of the Green Bay Packers. Sometimes he would wear a giant cheese head on game day. After graduation, Brother John headed for the University of Dayton, but Joe decided to stay home for a year and study accounting at Cleveland's Community College at their main branch in Parma. He was doing pretty well, but he was planning a move. He'd been accepted to his dad's alma mater, the University of Cincinnati, and had decided to enroll there. He'd already mailed them his transcripts. He also worked first at Wendy's on Pearl Road, 
where he was a crew leader and opened the store on weekends. He made good friends there who appreciated how he could make long shifts entertaining, playing tic-tac-toe in the parking lot with chalk or trading minor pranks. When work began to interfere with school and Joe pulled a C average, he quit Wendy's to spend more time studying. It worked. His grades soared back up to A's and B's. But what young man doesn't need money? So he eventually took another job, this time at the Steak and Shake in Brunswick. At first he worked the grill, then he became a waiter, but it wasn't a great situation for him. Unlike at Wendy's, he didn't get along with his co-workers. Reportedly, they made fun of him, especially of a habit he had of bobbing his head while he talked. Then they made his life more hellish by changing the schedule to stick him with less desirable and less profitable shifts. Work was a definite source of anxiety in his life. The morning of Saturday, February 11, Joe was still lounging in bed when his dad, George, peeked into his bedroom. George was working on taxes and wanted to know how much Joe had in his bank account. $7,000, Joe told his dad. Then Joe hopped out of bed. He was due at work that afternoon. A schedule that Joe hand-wrote at home so his parents would always know where he was showed he was supposed to work from noon to 10 p.m. So he dressed in his black pants and white button-up shirt uniform, and just after 11 a.m., he left the house. The sound of his car door shutting was the last noise his dad would ever hear him make. Joe never showed up at work, but his co-workers weren't looking for him. At work, the schedule said Joe was supposed to start at 5 p.m., not noon. Instead, Joe had gone to downtown Cleveland, and that's where he was found, 14 hours after leaving home at 1 o'clock in the morning, lying in a bloody heap on the black pavement of an alley. There were two separate men who spotted him there, thinking he'd been severely beaten. But Joe was still alive then. One of the men who found him, 22-year-old Adam Warner, who was walking home from a bar, called 911. EMTs arrived. At 1.47 a.m., Joe arrived at Metro Health Medical Center, strapped to a backboard and neck brace, and placed on a ventilator. But the damage was just too great. Multiple broken bones, internal bleeding, and a lung punctured by a knife's blade. He was pronounced dead at 3.08 a.m., Meanwhile, back in the alley, investigators were beginning to piece together more of this story, and they learned that while Joe was on the pavement, that's not where this incident started. Joe had actually plummeted from the ninth floor of the parking deck at Ontario Street and Prospect Avenue. Joe's car, a 1997 black Honda Civic, was found on the top level of the deck, Police had no trouble identifying it as the original crime scene. The car wasn't running, but the keys were in the ignition and the driver's side door was wide open. A pair of shoes were on the floor beneath the steering wheel, explaining why Joe had no shoes on when they found him. 
and there was blood. It started inside the car, then trailed from the door to the railing of the garage deck. And the weapon responsible for all that blood was right there, six feet from the car door, a fillet knife with a long blade. Though not a knife that could be traced to the stake and shake where Joe worked or to his home in Strongsville. Police would eventually come to decide that Joe stabbed himself in the chest with that knife while he was sitting in his car, then walked himself to the edge of the parking deck and threw himself from the ninth floor. Security cameras and a time-stamp parking ticket showed Joe had pulled into the garage just after 1 p.m. He'd been there half a day. A report by the Cleveland Police Homicide Unit reads, What exactly Kupchik did for the approximately 12 hours that his car was in the garage, we don't know. We can't discount that he remained in his vehicle, reclined in his car seat, possibly listening to music, and contemplating what he was going to do. Police also made a note that in the car, written in Joe's hand, was a note, just his name and address, placed on the dashboard for all to see. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sunday morning, as the Kupchik family returned home from church, police showed up at their Strongsfield house to tell them the news. After an autopsy, Frank Miller of the Cuyahoga County Coroner's Office agreed with investigators who thought Joe had killed himself. There were small scratches on Joe's stomach. Miller guessed they were signs that Joe was pushing on the flesh with a knife trying to get the courage to push deep. And it wasn't all that unusual to see a suicide victim change their strategy. Miller remembered a case of a man who had tied a noose around his neck, then shot himself. If Joe didn't think the knife was going to get the job done, he could have jumped to end things quicker. But why would police lean towards suicide at all? Why would they think this 19-year-old college student would stab himself, then fling himself nine stories to his death? Well, it was a pretty good working theory. You see, Joe was a good kid, but like many of us, he had personal demons to fight. In Joe's case, it was gambling. In the month before his death, he'd spent a considerable amount of money in online gambling. He'd even transferred more than $3,500 from an account that was designated for his tuition to his personal checking account, an amount that covered a payment of more than $3,400 to a gambling website based in the Caribbean. His habit was also obvious inside the bloody interior of his car, where police found handwritten notes showing point spreads for professional football and basketball games. And in his backpack, 
There were computer disks, including one that contained this passage written by Joe shortly before he died. Expectations can be either positive or negative, he wrote, but rarely am I ever right. Whenever I anticipate an event, probably to make my dreams come true, something usually happens where the situation turns into a nightmare. Anyway, Joe's struggle with gambling also came through in an interview that the Cleveland Plain Dealer had with Joe's friend, Tim Adams. Adams and Joe met their freshman year in high school, and Adams recalled how Joe would bet on video games with his twin brother, John, and he often made minor bets with both of his brothers on the outcome of NFL games, just a buck or two here or there. But as an adult with full access to his own bank account, things seemed to have gotten so much worse. The serious gambling had started just in the past few months. According to Joe's brother John in an interview with Renner, it had started with each of them adding $35 to an account at bodog.com to bet on NFL games. They did well. Their initial $70 investment ballooned to $1,600 over the course of the NFL season. But Joe went farther. He started betting on college basketball and losing more than winning and laying down more money to feed his new addiction. He paid off his brother and took over the Bodog account. The losses continued to pile up, which is when he started funding his habit with his college tuition. Three days before Joe died, he went to his friend, Tim Adams, and asked to borrow $500. Joe had never asked his friend for money before. He swore he was going to quit, and this one loan would put it all right and give him a chance at an all-but-certain $20,000 payoff that would allow him to replenish his college tuition fund. Adams gave him the $500, and Joe put the money down on Georgetown University to win the NCAA Men's Basketball Tournament that was set to begin in March. Georgetown was riding a seven-game victory streak. In that story by The Plain Dealer, the newspaper explored the world of online gambling. Back in the old days, gamblers had to have personal connections to place an illegal bet through bookies. While gambling was still illegal in 2006, it was easy to place bets with offshore companies using the internet and a credit card. It was an increasingly popular pastime for young men, in particular, studies showed. And college-aged males were the most susceptible to online gambling addiction because they are at an experimental stage in life when risky decisions are more likely to be made. Add to that growing financial freedom, and some are bound to make bad, even tragic choices. But suicide didn't answer every question in this mystery. Joe's family was convinced their son had been murdered. As a matter of fact, when George Kupchak learned from a news report on May 22nd that his son's death was going to be ruled a suicide, he demanded a meeting with a coroner. For starters, why didn't Joe wait to see if his bet on Georgetown paid off? He died before the tournament even began. 
Georgetown eventually lost to Florida, so Joe would have lost that bet. But on February 15, he didn't know that. Then there was the question of ice melt chemicals found on Joe's body. There was a large wooden container of the stuff nearby, likely used to salt the garage area in icy conditions. But for Joe to have the stuff on him, it sort of looked like he had been dragged along the ground. Also, the stab wound on the left side of Joe's chest. It was at a sharp, not natural angle and deep, and it was bleeding. His t-shirt was wet with it. So why was there no blood on the railing that Joe was supposed to have clambered over? Surely, as he hoisted himself over the metal, he would have left some blood residue behind. Unless he was stabbed while sitting in his car, dragged to the edge of the deck, then lifted over or pushed backwards, avoiding blood stains on the rail. Also odd, Joseph's cell phone. Police never found it. They found his money, his wallet, a backpack he'd had with him. That was all left at the scene. Clearly not a case of robbery, but no cell phone. Could that have been someone's attempt to hide a message, a phone call, a photo? There was also the question of the first man who had found Joe. He was there before the second man arrived, the one who had ultimately called 911. And that first man slipped away in the chaos of blue lights and sirens, having never been questioned. After meeting with George Kupchik, Cuyahoga County Coroner Elizabeth Balrush put a couple of investigators on the case to look at his questions. And in June, she called the Kupchaks back. Although she agreed with her pathologists and police investigators that Joe very likely had taken his own life, she would officially rule his death undetermined. The Kupchaks aren't the only ones convinced Joe didn't commit suicide. A private investigator that offered to help the family collected information that suggested Joe was looking to the future. He'd even talked to a girl about going out for Valentine's Day. Joe's sister Kate told James Renner she thinks her brother might have been with someone he worked with. That maybe there was a fight. Joe got cut accidentally, lost consciousness, maybe stored where that ice melt stuff was, and and that whoever assaulted him left him and came back to the garage later to carry him to the railing and toss him over. She thinks someone at work may have even changed his schedule from noon to 5 p.m. to cover an alibi. And Joe's friend, Tim Adams, the one who loaned him the money for his last bet, said he thought it was murder as well. The Cavs played that night in downtown Cleveland. Maybe someone lured Joe downtown using the game as an excuse. Theories abound, but it's all speculation. Police are no closer to proving Joe's death a homicide, or a suicide for that matter, than the day he died. Again, I want to give credit to true crime author James Renner and the Cleveland Plain Dealer for most of the details and quotes in this story. Steve, this one is anyone's guess, but what do you think, suicide or murder? 
I'm leaning towards suicide. I know that there wasn't any blood on the rail and stuff like that. You know, when I go up to Cleveland, when I take the big bus up to Cleveland, I'm right at Prospect and Superior there. I know exactly where that place is. I just, I think that, you know, those little marks on his body where it kind of like where he was trying to get the, you know, the will to stab himself. I think that's what happened. I think he, he found out it was a little bit more painful and not as quick. So he decided to drop him, drop himself off that garage yeah i i can see it i can see it that way i I probably lean that way i can see it both ways for sure i I think the family has asked some really good questions that they haven't been able to get answered and so it's easy to see why this haunts them i know we sure wish them the best and hope for some resolution in the future though i'm not sure how it would come absolutely That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Mr. Carnivore is a band comprised of brothers Pat and Joe LaGuardia and whatever friends they can find to fill out their needs. You can learn more about them at their website, Mr. Carnivore Eats. The band was gearing up last year to raise some funds for a five-song release, but the pandemic hit, and it just made sense to wait. Now, nine months later, they've decided to release one of the songs they wanted to release back then. We're featuring it tonight, and they are it's going to kick off a series of recordings. They're just going to see where it takes them. Well, let's have another listen to Troll by Mr. Carnivore, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Dream.
nowhere, nowhere to go. one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.